Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. I'm Harry. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Partygate and whether the fines for Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak will have any consequences. And you ask us, is the offshoring of migrants to Rwanda a dead cat? We're delighted to be joined today by our senior correspondent, Harry Lambert. Thanks for having me. So this is the first time on this podcast that we're actually discussing the impact of the fixed penalty notices that have been issued to Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson's wife over Partygate. We know that they've had one fine each so far, but we expect there may be more down the line. So far, it doesn't look like Tory MPs are using this as an opportunity to act against Boris Johnson, but there have there has been a resignation. David Wolfson from the Lords, he was a justice minister and he's resigned over this. And there's a couple of MPs who are saying that, that Boris Johnson ought to resign. But it's a very different atmosphere than what it was when these revelations were coming out earlier this year, isn't it, Alva? So, I mean, it was weird. I was in Parliament that day as the news broke, sitting in a completely dead PCH... <laughs> <laughs> there was no feeling of urgency before when like those stories were breaking you could feel the electricity going through that big open area where people gather in the House of Commons then there was just none of that because it's recess but I think that actually does have an impact on how this plays out among Conservative MPs it's funny I don't know what you think Harry or, or either of you people have been chatting for the past few months while the war has begun in Ukraine about what would happen if Boris Johnson was issued with a fi- fixed penalty notice I saw lots of our colleagues in the lobby tweeting that they'd had lots of conversations with Conservative MPs that he, you know, it would be curtains for Boris Johnson if there was a fine and they're not sure if he could survive it, which isn't really what I had been hearing from Conservative MPs. I think because that party is so huge, you'll find MPs of all shades of opinion, but it's not necessarily representative. I feel like people actually didn't really believe he would be fined. I think there was a kind of a feeling of denial. So I think definitely Conservative MPs were surprised, but they're all on holiday And they're not speaking to each other, not deliberately, but just because they're all apart. Mm. And they want a break from this, which means the energy has been completely sapped out of this debate. And then there isn't really an obvious contender. So even the people who would have been really unhappy about this a few months ago, I think, are leaving it. I know, Harry, you've done a lot on Number 10 and Boris Johnson and so on. But from a Conservative MP's perspective, I think they kind of just want a break. (laughs) They've kind of been working hard. They don't really want to be hassled by journalists, don't want to be thinking about whether they submit a letter. They're they're in Cornwall or they're spending time with their family. And really, the, the timing of this announcement, I think, is really significant. I don't know if that was deliberate at all on the part of the Met Police to do this at a time when Parliament wasn't sitting. But it means the, the that combination of there being no obvious contender, no one in Cabinet willing to resign and cause a fuss, and then Conservative MPs not even being together just means it's been a damp squib, even though this is a really major, unprecedented event. Yeah, mm. Just to add to that, I, I agree. And I think the fact that there's not just a no replacement prince, if you like, or, or, or alternative leader, but there's no real leader to, to the rebel plot. And there never was, even when 
there was a lot of uh, momentum behind this in February. It was all coming from the ground up, people individually resigning, often in a very uncoordinated way. And you've never had a, a centralized campaign of people who are trying to unseat the prime minister as you had with Theresa May. And I think, so that was always a, a drag in February. And now, as you say, completely the momentum's gone. I spoke to a couple of people this week who in February were telling me, there'll be a no confidence vote, you know, it's going to happen. And, <laughs> All and, the letters are in, I've yeah, heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, now, and, and, and these are definitely um, pretty well-established people in the party, but I think that they just feel like the momentum isn't there. And I think this is just the way humans work in general. We have a paradigm in place about the world and it can be shaken and news can come through and momentum can build and then suddenly you can think, oh my God, I've got to change my whole outlook. But so much of that is now baked in that, that none of this is very shocking to Tory MPs anymore, I think. And so... The, the paradigm staying in place that Boris should be leader. And it's interesting that they're telling themselves this story of why it's not the right time to move, isn't it? Because mm. it doesn't mean that the public is any less angry. We've had a bit of polling out that shows that the majority do think Boris Johnson should resign. It is a bit lower than those snap polls that we were talking about back when uh, these parties were being revealed. But what's interesting is that when we did our own polling after the war had broken out to work out whether or not the war in Ukraine changed people's opinion of Boris Johnson and whether or not he should resign, the big majority said it didn't change their opinion either way. And mm. the majority said he ought to resign. So I think that argument about the war in particular is not a very strong one. I think Tory MPs probably deep down know that it's not. And they're not hearing that from constituents either. I mean, I heard from one Tory MP's office in a solid Conservative seat that the emails and letters have been coming in about Boris Johnson since this news like a thunder. And actually, that's a, another aspect of MPs being off on recess. Are they more likely to be exposed to their constituents' views when they're outside of Westminster? So that could be a potential sort of thing that may shift their opinion if more fines come in in particular. But what I'm interested in, actually, and Harry, you've been covering this a little bit, is what it means, because the other part of the argument for why they shouldn't move against Boris Johnson now is that they don't have that successor figure. And actually, that comes off the back of a terrible few weeks for Rishi Sunak, who was maybe even just two or three months ago seen as the obvious clean slate, safe pair of hands mm -hmm. who could come in and succeed Boris Johnson. What has all of this meant for him and his relationship with the Prime Minister. I think there's so much to be still reported about the, the nature of that relationship. From what I'm hearing, that certainly one side of the relationship is pretty disappointing in the other, and that's Boris Johnson. So he's, he's unhappy with Sunak because of he felt Sunak didn't give him the support he needed at his weakest moment in early February. We'll all remember when we were together, weren't we, when Mears resigned mm. and it suddenly felt like yeah. Johnson's government could collapse. And just around then, Sunak also said, I wouldn't have said it in reference to Johnson's uh, comments about Jimmy Savile. Um, and that was a real moment where Rishi was trying to walk the, the dividing line between being supportive and suggesting to people that he was also disappointed in Boris. And now Boris, from the accounts I'm hearing, feels... Well, here's the interesting question. So, so on the one hand, I was hearing that he wants him sacked and he wants to move on from him. But in the last 24 hours, talking to some more people, it, it might be the case that the Rishi's weak enough now that Boris doesn't feel the need to eventually <laughs> sack him, right? It could just be, it's almost like Rishi, he, he briefs that he's going to resign, never does. Mm -hmm. And it might be with, with the Johnson camp that they feel simply saying that they have the power to get rid of Rishi is enough to keep Rishi 
you know, where they want him. And just while we're still on that, before we move on, you reported that Boris Johnson openly uses two sweary nicknames for Rishi Sunak, but you didn't give us what those nicknames were. And I just want to give you the opportunity to clear that up for our listeners. <laughs> An NS podcast exclusive. Yeah, I know, I know. I was thinking about this on the train. I was like, they're definitely going to make me try and say the nicknames. So I think they're so flammable, just any kind of specific terms that the PM uses about the Chancellor that I, I wanted to get an- another source on their exact wording before I put them in print or say them aloud. So I, I can't do that. But I, I'm very confident in the person who, who told me about them and I'm, I'm sure that they are being used. And what I can say further to Alva's reporting on Rishi and, and Labour's strategy for him is that one of them does denigrate Sunak for being small. There you go. Seems that we're <laughs> no one's very inventive. Even yeah. though Boris Johnson is not that much taller than just just two yeah. inches taller. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolute hubris, really, from both sides, because <laughs> neither party has a particularly tall leader at the moment. <laughs> I mean, it is short, short King Spring. Alva, you were going to come in. Well, I just think it's interesting in terms of the actual policy. I think all this reporting around the relationship between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak is fascinating from Harry. But I think that it's interesting in terms of how the policy plays out, because there's in terms of briefings about you know about each of them, their allies, who's up and who's down, whether Rishi's well-placed to succeed Boris Johnson. I think that's one thing. But then actually, who's going to be holding the purse strings? Who takes the blame for any failures around dealing with the cost of living crisis? We've been talking quite a lot on this podcast over the past few months about Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak being locked in a dance of death. So in a way, like Rishi Sunak has forced, has roped Boris Johnson into following through on that national insurance increase. And Rishi Sunak is unpopular off the back of that now. And for, you know, this perceived failure to properly bring in measures that will support people as living standards drop. But does Boris Johnson suffer for that too? Mm -hmm. And in terms of the actual economic approach that Rishi Sunak favours, where he just is so is so committed to this idea of maintaining fiscal headroom in case the, suddenly the cost of borrowing goes up more and more. Is he still going to have a handle on that or is Boris Johnson going to be able to actually change the policy? And if he does, would that make Rishi Sunak more popular again? The, I think the interrelation between the personal there and then actually the policies that the government is bringing in is quite interesting. Yeah, I think that dance of death is a really good way of putting it because while we see it as if one's up, the other's down, and I'm sure they see that internally as well, actually, they're just doing damage to each other's reputations and ultimately that of the party, I think. John Curtis was looking at some of the polling about how far Labour ahead is in the polls since the sort of Owen Paterson affair, which is when we really started to see these stories of sleaze affecting the Conservative Party's reputation. That lead you know it's a few points it's not that high and it has dropped since October but that lead has stayed quite steady throughout the different polling companies and things so you really do think that perhaps the the reputation of the Tory party is being damaged by both men and the various things that they're doing that are unpopular and if Boris Johnson tries to use this sort of position of fractionally more power that he now feels that he has over Rishi Sunak because of this dent to to Rishi Sunak's political ambitions surely that's going to be unpopular with the Tory MPs who think that the government has been spending too much since the pandemic yeah I think I think you're absolutely right that they're moving lockstep if you look at the data over the last two years Johnson and Sunak's popularity like literally does always move in the same way and same time Mm. Sunak's always about 10 or 20 points ahead of Johnson obviously that's now pretty much collapsed Mm. but the other thing is in the last reshuffle you could pretty much tell who was going to get fired just by looking at the con home ratings of voters Tory members who who vote on that platform and everyone who had a poor rating essentially got fired and Rishi's gone from top three to bottom three 
And I do think, silly as it might sound, I do think that kind of thing mixed with the actual national opinion poll data suggests that Rishi is in a tough place. The question is who would replace him? And I think uh, one name that was floated to me yesterday as the only person that could easily slot in was Steve Barkley. It would be quite a heady ascent, but he's now chief of staff. Johnson probably could feel confident he has his his own man in there. And the idea was that he sort of is someone who the public would trust to to maybe be a fresh start in there. And it's it's not clear who else you'd put in there, because if you put Liz Truss in the Treasury, then you've really made her a very powerful person to, to replace you. What do you think, guys? I, I don't want to be mean about Steve Barkley, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, was that Steve Barkley? <laughs> I thought Steve Barkley would make a brilliant chancellor. Yeah. Or Steve Barkley's best friend. I have to say, I, I, I don't think it was. Steve Barkley when they gave the Homes for Ukraine scheme responsibility over to Michael Gove rather than the cabinet. Right. This. So yeah. I don't know if that says anything about his standing within. Well, Gove, Gove sorts of get Gove gets all the tough briefs, doesn't he? Yeah. But, but you can't make him chancellor because his his reputation is that he's enumerate. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's what people say. Michael, if you're listening, forgive us. <laughs> Does he listen to the NS podcast? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> um, but I suppose, coming back a little bit to the original thing on the fixed penalty notices before we move on, I suppose we should insert a big caveat that none of us really know whether anything will change once the MPs are actually back in Westminster. Yeah. Because if you were going to submit a letter you probably wouldn't do it in recess when the others can't be counted. Graham Brady's probably not counting them. He's probably away on holiday as well. I think that it could be that this is just on ice for this week. And I think that's still unlikely, but it's hard to know how these things play out. A week is such a long time in politics, which is such a cliche. But if there there could be another development related to that, another fine... I think especially since that looks likely if they're working through the events chronologically, if this crops up again when the MPs are together and it feels like this is a sort of low campaign of attrition by the Met Police issuing fine after fine, Mm. that could maybe change things. Yeah. And don't forget that we've got the local elections coming up now, which will... It was waning this idea that they'd be seen as a referendum on Partygate. But of course, all of these fines have resurrected that idea. So that could be another point where MPs might decide to move. Could I, could I just jump in on that? Uh, Anoush, you'll know from my time running an election website for the 2015 election. Predictions are just so impossible in politics, aren't they? Three weeks ago, we wouldn't have said we're sitting here talking about Rishi Zunak's defenestration. And I think, Alvi, you're absolutely right that we should all be so uh, humble about what we think we know, because at any point, things could change. Yeah. And also, it's really hard to get a read on the Tory party. As you say, there's 360 of them. So if you speak to 36 MPs, which sounds like a lot, that's three dozen MPs, you've still spoken to only 10% of the party. So any one journalist, as you say, is always, we can't survey them scientifically. So it's always going to be a bit unclear what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And especially, like you said, because it's so disparate. During Brexit, you would know who to call from which faction of the party that was supporting which version of Brexit they preferred. But with this, it's just, it came from everywhere, didn't it? I remember we were talking about the pork pie plot and the cream tea coup. And I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head, but I can't at the moment. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. counties. Heist. That's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> so we'll obviously have you both back to discuss this when MPs are back next week. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from one pound a week. That's twelve weeks for twelve pounds if you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast. 
audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover. Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election. And Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we call You Ask, you ask us. us. Our question today comes from Will. Thanks so much for emailing in. He asks, why does a so-called populist government keep introducing or announcing policies that are seemingly not very popular? For example, the offshore processing of refugees. We looked up the polling on this after we received it just to check. And actually it looks like the policy of offshore processing for asylum seekers is popular. 53% are in favour, 18% against. But obviously that polling, while it is recent, is not relating to the most recent policy that the government has announced today. We're recording on Thursday morning of outsourcing processing and resettlement of refugees who try and come here via the channel route in Rwanda. I'm not sure if necessarily it is an unpopular policy, but we don't have the polling on the details of that yet. But then again, does it mean necessarily that this policy has purely been announced for populist purposes? I think so. In that you can see from Twitter, which I know is not, you know, is not the same as the general public and a particular cross-section of it, but... Uh, you can see from Twitter that lots of people are absolutely horrified by this new policy that Pretty Patel is finalising today of flying people arriving on the shores of the UK to seek asylum from places like Ukraine if they haven't got a visa or from Afghanistan to fly them ha- like four and a half thousand miles to Rwanda at enormous expense as well as with huge legal ethical concerns and human rights concerns. You can see that lots of people are very upset about this and for good reason but actually that's a that's an argument I wrote about this morning from Morning Call. That's an argument that the government is actually very comfortable having. People saying, oh, this is awful, this is cruel, this is inhumane, this is so hardline, is exactly what Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel really want. 
when the uncomfortable truth for Pretty Patel is that she's absolutely failing on her own terms on this. Like, despite the tough rhetoric, the number of people crossing the, the channel and trying to enter the, the UK, quote unquote, illegally, has like, rocketed under her. It was massive. It was 28,000 something last year, up from 8,000 the year before, uh, up from 1,000 the year before that. It's absolutely rocketed under Boris Johnson's government and under Pretty Patel as Home Secretary, even though she's the Home Secretary with all the tough rhetoric about it. She's actually doing so badly on this by, <laughs> like, by, by her own criteria that she's in line to, to probably be sacked from her position. So actually, People talking about, oh, Pretty Patel is awful, or this is so hardline, this is so cruel. There are all these concerns there about this policy, but it's a little bit of a smokescreen for actually big policy failures there. And actually, I think it's maybe more politically profitable for the Labour Party to talk about the kind of absurdity of it, that we're, you know, we're flying these people arriving on the shores of the UK halfway around the world costing thousands and thousands of pounds or at least a, a 120 million pounds for the trial yeah, I read. yeah. But it's, it's over a thousand pounds per person we're spending a grand to, to fly someone to Rwanda to process their asylum application for reasons like, what, like, what, like why and then in general the, as you were saying the idea of, of offshore processing of asylum applications is quite popular but there's a difference between doing that like relatively nearby or at minimal expense and doing it in Rwanda with a dodgy human rights record at huge cost to the taxpayer and at a huge environmental cost on top of everything else so it's just to think that Andrew Mitchell who's a former international development secretary, a conservative mm. who's opposed to these plans, was saying that it would be less expensive to house migrants in the Ritz and if there were children to send them to Eton. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> I think the kind of absurdity of this when it's so expensive, it looks hard line, but it might actually not even work because the sort of the evidence that it will have a deterrent effect is quite weak. And, and actually, a lot of our problems around, well, a lot of the issues around this are actually around the huge backlog of processing asylum applications. And again, it's, just, it's not really obvious how sending people to Rwanda to do that will make the process any faster. So I do think that while there's a really serious side to this story about the people who will be caught up in it after going through some very difficult times in desperate situations, there's also a real absurdity to it that I think like the tone is difficult to get, but I think that it would be politically dangerous if everyone just treated this like it was the government being so tough on immigration and then snowflakes can't handle it, when it's not even necessarily a very good policy. You know what, I know this is bad for the podcast, but I totally agree. I I fail to get upset about policies that are announced like this, even though stories of refugees and migrants speak very personally to me. I just cannot be upset about it because I really don't think it's ever going to happen. These kind of plans have been around since the days of David Blunkett in the Home Office. In 2003, they were trying to work out a way of processing asylum seekers in some international transit centre outside of the EU. It never happens. This particular thing about outsourcing the small boats migrants has been announced, well, briefed, six times before today. Rwanda has been mentioned twice in that. We've also had Ghana mentioned, and I've got a list here. Papua New Guinea, Morocco, the Isle of Man, Gibraltar, other British overseas territories, Scottish Islands, Albania, and disused ferries. So it's already been announced millions of times, which already shows you know how difficult it's been cobbling together, this policy. And we saw from the time when they announced that they'd be sent to Albania, the Albanian government reacted quite 
uh, aggressively to that, saying, absolutely, we're not doing that. So you can see that it's been a difficult policy to cobble together behind the scenes because it is so unworkable and has been proven to be unworkable in the past. Then you've also got the issue of the UN Refugee Convention and human rights law as well, which means that it's quite unlikely that many people would be deported if this is implemented anyway. Two thirds of the people who come over on those boats actually are given refugee status and allowed to remain in the UK. So they do have the right to be here. And something that um, stuck out to me in some of the coverage of this was that it's only going to be men who are sent to Rwanda. And that's because they're more likely to be economic migrants. And I know we've, Stephen, when he used to work with us and I have bored listeners before, but this issue with economic migrants does seem quite strange for a conservative government that's supposed to be about enterprise and getting on in life and seeking financial stability, um, especially because we're, we're such an understaffed country now. Surely we shouldn't be paying another country millions of pounds to take our to take these sort of working age people who want to come here. Yeah, and we'll only become more understaffed, right? The whole story of the 21st century as it progresses will be rich developed countries needing workers from around the world to come to them as our populations decline so this stuff is all going to look very strange i think the older we get and not just strange obviously disturbing and i think maybe another thought here is just why is this happening this week why is it happening in the middle of recess is this an announcement being brought forward is this a dead cat The, the prime minister and the chancellor have just been fined it's a very strange time to announce this policy as you say it's already been floated half a dozen times. I don't think we should be naive about the fact that this is happening 24 hours after Partygate. Alva? And the Home Office has insisted that this announcement was always planned for this time. But I do think that maybe the giveaway that it wasn't necessarily planned is that the leader of Rwanda is himself on a foreign visit at the moment. (laughs) So he isn't actually there to see Priti Patel. So I don't know for certain if they ever planned a meeting, but it just looks a bit like odd timing. So I mean, I think you're totally right that this, and actually because this is an important policy on an issue that lots of people are really aware of and something that the government has talked about a lot, we we are forced to talk about it in tandem with Partygate. We don't have the space to just talk about fines for Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. So it has actually worked. And I think we don't know if that's to dislodge the Partygate story or actually just in recess to generate some quote-unquote positive headlines going into the local elections. But either way, it's a little bit... Yeah, yeah, and I know that some political commenters roll their eyes when you say something might be a dead cat, but I was looking through some of these previous briefings that I listed to you, and actually a lot of them did come out in times of difficulty or embarrassment for the government. That's quite common, so it might just be a coincidence. But the one before the last announcement, which I think was the Rwanda and Ghana announcement, was during that so-called Operation Red Meat, which was trying to say things to stop backbenchers putting their letters of no confidence in against Boris Johnson. So I think in this case... We're perhaps not being too cynical by assuming that uh, it was timed quite... Can I just quickly read out the quote that Johnson famously put in one of his articles? And this is from Crosby, who we now know is advising him and who potentially wants Rishi Sunak out to get back to our previous conversation. But this is the quote that Johnson put out about how you, you use a dead cat. Let us suppose you're losing an argument. The facts are overwhelmingly against you. And the more people focus on the reality, such as Partygate, the worse it is for you in your case. Your best bet in these circumstances is to perform a maneuver that a great campaigner, Crosby, describes as throwing a dead cat on the table, mate. That is because there's one thing that is absolutely certain about doing so. And I don't mean that people will be outraged, alarmed and disgusted. Sounds very like what we're talking about now. That's true, but irrelevant. The key point, as, as my Australian friend says, is that everyone will shout, geez, mate, there's a dead cat on the table. It does feel like we're in that territory here. And uh, the sort of onus of proof is on the government 
because that's certainly what it seems like to me. And, and yeah, that's an interesting quote. I wish you'd done the Australian accent though. Harry. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, sure sorry. Boris Johnson did what he was saying. Geez, mate, there's a dead cat on the table. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's very good. good. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> but I think it's worth just one more point on this: is that the small boats, the channel migrants thing, is a big sort of point of neurosis within this government isn't it they're worried that they get outflanked on the right when Nigel Farage rants against it on uh, what's that channel called GB News <laughs> yeah GB News so it is <laughs> so it is it is an issue of contention and actually Pretty Patel has been labelled the minister for hot air by the mail on Sunday because of the amount of times that she said that she's going to crack down on it and hasn't I think she actually was the one to first announce that she wanted to stop 100% of those crossings and Boris Johnson has just reiterated that commitment today so you know it is worth keeping an eye on how well they go about this policy because it is an area of weakness for them on the right. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Harry Lambert. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and to subscribe. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.